Thanks for watching Morning Live. Now, in Zimbabwe, opposition parties and civil society are calling on government to acknowledge allegations of human rights abuses aggravated by crackdowns on protests. The Zimbabwean government has denied claims that there is a crackdown on anti-government corruption protesters, saying the police and military are enforcing COVID-19-related protocols. Both the United Nations Secretary General and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has called on Zimbabwe's authorities to live up to their human rights We're obligation. now seeing an escalation of the crackdown on dissent by authorities against anyone who demands accountability and respect for Zimbabwe's human rights. Zimbabwe's opposition leader Nelson Chamisa is calling on the international community to intervene in human rights violations in the country. This week, three women who had been picketing in Harare were allegedly abducted by police officers. And uh, there is an indication of state involvement because these three young women were arrested by the police at a police roadblock and taken to Arara Central Police Station. Zimbabwe's government wants to set the record straight. There is no crisis or implosion in Zimbabwe. Thank you for joining us today on our audio journey through Africa. My name is Nangam Sokwinana and I am delighted that you have tuned in again. In our last episode, we started the journey in South Africa and talked to Constitutional Court Judge Edwin Cameron. If you missed the first episode, listen in. You will find the link in this podcast's show notes. Today, we travel to Zimbabwe. About a year ago, the former president, Robert Mugabe, passed away at the age of 95. After 37 years in power, he was overthrown in a military coup only two years earlier in 2017. Now, three years after his defenestration, we would like to shed light on how Zimbabwe has fared after his infamous departure. Mugabe was probably one of the most controversial leaders in Africa. Many remember him as that head of state who liberated Zimbabwe in 1980 from its colonial occupier, the British Empire. However, during his almost 40 years in office, this perception held by many Africans changed. Since the beginning of the millennium, many began to see him as a dictator who led his country to ruin. During his reign, he was accused of human rights violations, electoral fraud, and restrictions on the freedom of the press. Consequently, the USA and Europe, among others, imposed entry bans or targeted travel restrictions on Mugabe and most members of his government. In 2008, the economy collapsed with inflation rates skyrocketing into unprecedented trillions. Shame, shame, shame we say to the United States of America. Shame, shame, shame we say. Uh, to Britain and its allies who have continued to impose sanctions, illegal sanctions upon our people. As is often the case with authoritarian leaders, Mugabe blamed others, except himself, for his country's economic downspin, specifically the Western powers and their sanctions on Zimbabwe. He accused his fellow countrymen of being puppets of the West and as detractors with a regime change agenda. 
While the majority of the population suffered under drastic inflation and food shortages, Mugabe celebrated his 88th birthday, spending roughly 1 million US dollars on the festivities. Mugabe's successor, Emerson Nangagwa, spoke of reforms for the country in that he now affectionately refers to as a new dispensation and second republic. Today, we shall take a closer look at the situation on the ground and try to unpack some of the critical and relevant questions regarding Zimbabwe. Have the promised reforms yet been implemented or at least initiated? Compared to pre-independence times, did the people's economic and social situation take a turn for the better? Some argue Zimbabwe is worse off now. If not, does the current government have the capacity and political will to reform for the betterment of Zimbabwe. Today, two very interesting guests from Zimbabwe are joining us. Please welcome Senator David Coltart, opposition politician, human rights lawyer, and current MDC Alliance Treasurer General, and Dumisani Muleya, international award-winning investigative journalist, who is also a strong critic of the Mnangagwa regime. Thank you so much, Senator Coltart and Dumisani Mulea, for taking the time to be our guests today. As briefly mentioned earlier, former President Mugabe polarized and divided the Zimbabwean society. There are those who considered and still consider him a hero for bringing independence and freedom to the country. Others regard him as a tyrant a ruthless leader who presided over human rights violations and torture of those with dissenting views, a man who killed more than 22,000 people in Matebele land under the Kukrahundi project, who misappropriated huge amounts of money and who thrived through sophisticated election fraud. Please note that Mugabe was not alone on this trail of destruction. The current president, who has promised Zimbabweans a better future, was his henchman. Senator Coltart, can you please briefly explain what happened during the many years of Mugabe's reign? The situation in Zimbabwe seems to have worsened continuously during his term of office as Zimbabwe moved from one deep end to another. When uh, Robert Mugabe and Zanu PF took power, uh, from the white minority regime in 1980. Um, President Nyerere of Tanzania said to him, look after Zimbabwe because you've inherited the jewel of Africa. And unfortunately, in the uh, 37 years of Mugabe's rule, he transformed Zimbabwe from this jewel into a, a country which has seen a massive number of its citizens uh, leave the country, go into economic or political exile. Uh, we now face a situation where uh, millions of Zimbabweans face starvation. Uh, we have one of the highest inflation rates in the world, uh, one of the highest rates of unemployment in the world. And uh, that all happened uh, under Mugabe's watch between 1980 and his removal in the coup of November 2017. 
but as you've said in your introduction, uh, this cannot just be laid at Robert Mugabe's door uh, because uh, he was the leader of ZANU-PF. He was president of the country and he was assisted in these policies which have led to the destruction of Zimbabwe uh, by the current president uh, and, and many of the current leaders of, of ZANU-PF. Senator Coltard, uh, you've introduced us to a brief summary of the transition period that took place during the 37 years of Mugabe's reign, how the jewel of Africa was transformed into the political exile. Um, you've also mentioned starvation of the population of Zimbabwe, You've mentioned the high inflation rate that Zimbabwe has earned during that 37 years. And also you've mentioned the high unemployment rate. I'd like to please find out, regarding security in Zimbabwe, have there been situations in which you, as a member of the opposition, have feared for your life or have been threatened in any way? Just to explain to uh, the listeners and of this program, uh, I, I've been a human rights lawyer aside from a politician for 37 years. Uh, when I returned to the, the country in 1983, as a young lawyer, I started representing the nationalist icon Joshua Nkomo's Zapu party, which was then the, the main opposition party. And I'm always a bit, a bit embarrassed to speak about the uh, the trials that I have uh, suffered as an individual, because quite frankly, they pale into insignificance uh, compared to the trials that uh, many black Zimbabwean politicians uh, have suffered uh, since independence. Um, you mentioned in your opening remarks the Kokorohundi, uh, which was a crime against humanity perpetrated by Robert Mugabe and Emerson Manangagwa and, and the ZANU-PF party uh, against the people of, of Matabeleland. Um, this was a strategy to destroy Nkomo's Zapu party, to create a de facto one-party state. And it led at the time, as you've mentioned, to thousands of supporters of Zapu uh, being eliminated, killed in cold blood, uh, many disappeared and tortured, uh, detained for lengthy period, periods of time. And that included the senior leadership of ZAPU. Um, but you've asked the question of, of uh, what has happened to me. So I, I have been detained. I've been charged with uh, spurious, uh, a spurious offense. I've uh, survived four assassination attempts on, on my life in the last 20 years. Um, I've been subjected to, to all sorts of threats. Um, my family has had to, on several occasions, go into, into hiding. Uh, I've had very close, uh, co close personal friends. Uh, Patrick Nabanyama, who was one of my uh, campaign workers uh, when I was first elected to parliament, uh, was abducted on the 19th of June 2000, and he's never been seen again. He was disappeared permanently uh, to this day. We do not know where he is. Another very close friend of mine, Paul Chizuze, uh, a wonderful uh, Catholic uh, human rights activist, 
who helped me greatly in the 1990s in uh, producing a human rights report uh, which exposed the Kukurohundi called Breaking the Silence. This was a report produced by the Catholic Commission for Justice and Peace and the Legal Resources Foundation. And Paul Chizuzzi was a, a key investigator in, in the production of that report. In February 2012, he was also disappeared and has never been seen again. And there are many others, uh, even this, uh, this past year, some 70 uh, activists uh, have been uh, detained um, and brutally tortured. Three of my colleagues in the MDC uh, recently, young women leaders were detained, sexually assaulted, uh, disappeared for a period um, and subjected to all manner uh, of abuse. So th- th- this is a very brutal regime. And in fact, the brutality has increased uh, since Emerson Managagua came to power on the back of the coup of November 2017. Uh, we've seen a worsening of the human rights situation. Thank you, Senator Coltart, for giving us that reflection. Um, it is always an an enlightening um, to hear the accounts of Zimbabwe from someone of your stature who has experienced uh, the, the the human rights violations in Zimbabwe. And also, I am aware that some of the, 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 the names that you've mentioned, you actually did assist those um uh those those persons with legal representation as between 1983 and 1987 i'm aware that you also initiated the first legal aid project in zimbabwe so thank you very much for giving us those insights and thank you very much for leading us into getting an understanding of from your view after the fall of mugabe Many Zimbabweans hoped for reforms. The current president, Emerson Nangagwa, we all are aware that he is a longtime party friend of the former president. Where does Zimbabwe stand now, now that Mugabe has been deposed and now that Mugabe has passed on? When Nangagwa came to power in late November 2017, there were many people who uh, were enthusiastic about this and, and felt that he would de- deliver a new era of peace and stability and respect for human rights in Zimbabwe. I'm afraid I was one of those who was skeptical on the day after the military um, helped citizens of Zimbabwe right across the, the country demonstrate against uh, Mugabe. You may recall there were mass demonstrations in Harare and Bulawayo on the 18th of November 2017. And the day after that, I wrote uh, a paper um, which was posted on social media in which I, I said that our optimism was misplaced. Uh, the reason I was skeptical was because uh, I was in cabinet with Emerson Minangagwa in the Government of National Unity between 2009 and 2013. And I got to see him up close. Of course, in my role as a lawyer going way back to the 1980s, I understood uh, the role that uh, Emerson Managagwa had played in the Gukurohundi that we've discussed. Um, much of the blame for that 
is laid at Robert Mugabe's door. But the reality is that Emerson Minagagwa uh, was one of his key lieutenants responsible for actually executing uh, those policies. In, in fact, there were three men, I think, who are primarily responsible for the crimes against humanity committed between 1983 and 1987. The first is Emerson Minagagwa, who at that time was Minister of State Security, responsible for our secret police, who played a pivotal role in identifying uh, political uh, opponents of Mugabe at the time. And he worked very closely with the current vice president appointed by Emerson, uh, Minagagwa, Constantino Chiwenga, who at that time was the commander of one brigade, an army brigade based in, in Matabila land, which provided all the logistical support uh, to a third organization involved in the Kokorohundi, the North Korean trained 5th Brigade, uh, which was led by Perens Shiri, who died recently of COVID uh, and who was appointed by Minangagwa as Minister of, of Agriculture in the current government since uh, Mugabe's um, uh, removal. Uh, but the point I'm making is that these three men bear the primary responsibility for the crimes against humanity committed between 1983 and 1987. And uh, for your listeners, you need to understand the gravity of what happened then. The human rights abuses that we've seen in the last two years are minimal compared to what happened then. Uh, in, in those years, um, the, these three units, namely the, the CIO, the secret police, one brigade soldiers and five brigade soldiers were deployed into the rural areas of Matabeleland. They were armed with lists of Zapu uh, leaders from these villages, and they went through those villages systematically. So when we talk about 20,000 people killed, um, what we don't understand is how specific those killings were. And the second and third tier leadership of Zapu at that time uh, was decimated, uh, almost completely uh, eliminated. Uh, and these three men have played a pivotal role in the governance of Zimbabwe since Robert Mugabe was um, removed from power in November 2017. And so they are responsible for the deployment of soldiers in the streets of Harare on the 1st of August uh, 2018, when uh, civilians were shot down in cold blood of the military again in January 2019, uh, where some 17, I think, or 19 civilians were shot in cold blood. Women were raped. Uh, tens, if not hundreds of people were detained. And they are the same people responsible for the horrors that we've seen in the past year, where, as I say, over 70 people have been uh, abducted, severely tortured. And by people, I mean teachers, doctors, um, civic activists, uh, church leaders. And these are the, the reasons why, for example, the Catholic Church recently issued a pastoral letter condemning what is going on. I hoped, like many people, that he'd turned over a, a new leaf and that he would use the goodwill uh, which was shown to him 
by many in the international community and by many Zimbabweans for that matter. Uh, we were, many people were impressed by his statements that he was committed to constitutionalism, uh, to opening up the economy, to tackling corruption, uh, to ending the human rights abuses, to respecting, as I say, the, the constitution. But the tragic reality of his rule, uh, since November 2017 is that arguably uh, the human rights situation in this country is even worse than it was in the darkest days of Robert Mugabe's rule. Senator Coltart, the devastating and horrific picture that you are painting for us today is that state institutions that are meant to protect society were basically used to harm the very same humans that they were meant to protect. You've shared with us about the secret police. You've shared with us about the one brigade. You've shared with us about the North Korean trained fifth brigade, which was a coalition of state institutions that were directly used to actually harm and murder the civilians of Zimbabwe. Looking at that situation, observing what has happened in the past and reflecting on present day, Corona has had an impact on the entire world in many, especially the autocratic states. Heads of state have abused Corona protection measures to silence their people and suppress unwelcome protests and demonstrations. Could you please relate the situation to present-day Zimbabwe? Since uh, Zimbabwe was uh, first locked down by the government, and let me put this out uh, so that your listeners are clear, I, I support the lockdown. I support the, the genuine measures which have been taken to combat uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. No one takes issue with that. The problem that we have is that since the lockdown measures were announced in March this year, they have been used as a cover by this regime uh, to justify a, a clampdown on the political opposition, the main uh, political party, uh, the MDC alliance, and they've been used to justify uh, the illegal detention of people, journalists such as Hopewell Chinono, um, and, and other uh, civic uh, leaders. Uh, we've seen a dramatic uh, deterioration in the human rights uh, situation in this country. Uh, let me focus on Hopewell Chinono's case. Uh, Hopewell Chinono is a, another uh, award-winning journalist like our, my colleague Dumasani Mulea, um, and he has been clearly fed uh, interesting information in the course of this year. Uh, Hopewell Chinono, having revealed this very sensitive information exposing corruption, uh, was detained uh, by this regime. And part of the justification for his detention was that he was alleged to uh, be in breach of COVID regulations. That is one example. But let me use an, another example. Uh, as you know, I'm Treasurer General of the MDC Alliance Party, uh, our presidential candidate, narrowly lost to Emerson Monagagwa in the July 2018 uh, elections. When I say narrowly lost, according to the government figures, we don't accept that he lost, but even if you take the government figures, 
uh, Nelson Chamisa uh, got 2.2 million uh, votes and and lost to uh, to Manangagwa by some 28,000 votes in in that election. The point I'm simply making is that. The, the government figures themselves demonstrate that the MDC alliance is the principal opposition party. Well, two days after the COVID uh, lockdown was announced in March, uh, the Supreme Court issued a judgment um, against another political party entirely, the MDC Tea Party. It gets very confusing for your listeners, but they're, they're two separate political parties, the MDC Tea and the MDC Alliance. And this judgment has been used by these surrogates uh, of ZANU-PF together with ZANU-PF to remove MPs elected on an MDC alliance ticket. In the July 2018, we've had some 31 MPs removed from parliament illegally and replaced by ZANU-PF surrogates. Uh, the this same surrogate party, the MDCT, has violently taken over our headquarter building with the support of the military and the police. And finally, uh, money is due to us in terms of the national budget because of the percentage of seats that we won in parliament has been illegally directed away from our party to pay for this uh, ZANU-PF surrogate party, the MDCT. All of this has been done under cover of COVID-19. So the the pandemic has been used very cynically. And of course, having removed our parliamentarians uh, from parliament, uh, by-elections have been created. They're they're vacant seats and by-elections should should take place. Uh, Surprisingly, well, I suppose not surprisingly, uh, the ZANU-PF government has announced that there will be no by-elections because of COVID-19. So they've removed our MPs from Parliament and they've now used COVID-19 as an excuse not to hold by-elections uh, when ZANU-PF as a political party itself has been conducting primary elections and uh, the surrogate party, the MDCT, is about to have an entire extraordinary Congress. They allow those things to take place, uh, and yet they do not uh, 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 allow by-elections. I'm confident our listeners will appreciate the enlightenment that you've shared with us. And so far, what I'm hearing is a hostile government towards its citizens, a hostile government towards multi-party democracy, meaning that a contest of ideas is not very much encouraged in the situation that you've just described to us. Recently, Zimbabwe made worldwide headlines again in July. Opposition members called for protests against the decline of the economy. And of course, you you related to us earlier, Senator Coltard, of how the inflation rate is one of the highest in the world in Zimbabwe today. Before the protests had even begun, countless journalists and politicians were arrested. Similar to former President Mugabe, President Nangagwa blames the Western forces for wanting to destabilize Zimbabwe and thus for all negative developments. Mr. Malaya, I'd like to bring you in 
as a very experienced journalist. Senator Coltart has shared with us of how international journalists have been blocked from entering Zimbabwe. Could you please describe the situation in your view as an experienced and seasoned journalist? What is happening on the ground? Well, uh, thanks so much uh, for letting me in to contribute. And uh, Senator Coltart has done a great job in explaining the situation on the ground especially the political situation. Uh, Connected to what uh, the senator was saying uh, is what you have just asked. Uh, The environment in which uh, journalists and the media operate right from day one, uh, and by that I mean from 1980, it has been an authoritarian uh, environment in which the media uh, operates. Right now, as we sit here, Journalists, uh, they are not free at all. Uh, as uh, the senator has referred to the situation of Wopkel Shimono, who recently spent uh, 46 days uh, in prison for merely having uh, been uh, uh, one of the journalists who had investigated and uh, exposed corruption in relation to uh, the looting and abuse of uh, uh, COVID funds. Uh, one of the president's uh, cronies, if I can call him that, he got a contract uh, to supply some COVID material. And that contract uh, was obtained uh, corruptly. And when that was exposed uh, by journalists, among them, Opel Shimono and uh, another journalist called him to do Matutu, uh, the regime decided to do what it knows best, which is to crack down on them. If for Hopewell, it just went for the jugular, just got him arrested, threw him into prison, and then they raided, uh, that was in Arare. And then they went down to Bulawayo around the same time. They raided uh, Mr. Matutu's home and um, Dudu's uh, nephews, his sister. Uh, they were grabbed by the police, by the intelligence a team, something called the Ferret. It's a team that combines security agencies, police, um, uh, the intelligence that is sent usually to ferret out, as the name itself suggests, uh, dissenters or critics of the state. So they grabbed uh, the sister, the nephews. One of them, uh, called Tawada Mcheiwa, was uh, uh, taken away to some unknown destination where for three days he was tortured. He came back uh, 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 brutally battered, uh, disoriented, uh, and up to now he's still recovering. He's been doing quite a lot of interviews recently. He did one with the Sky News. He still, you can still tell that he's disoriented. Dumisani Mulea, uh, I've heard both you and Senator Coltard giving us a reflection of what has been experienced both by journalists on the ground in Zimbabwe and by journalists from the international community who are attempting to visit Zimbabwe. In your experience, are there any personal protection measures that journalists and other government critics can take in order to protect themselves? Yes, starting with the last part of it. Yeah, there are personal protection measures that people can take, just trying to make sure that uh, 
uh, you have cyber security, just protecting your data, your information, uh, your phone, uh, making sure that uh, uh, sometimes you don't expose yourself. I do a lot, and a lot of people warn me against that, that uh, like remaining in the office late at night alone, I always do because I'll be doing some stuff. But uh, most people always say, no, uh, don't do that. So there are quite a lot of things that people can do, uh, measures that people can take to protect themselves. And earlier, you shared with us the kind of environment that the media operates in in Zimbabwe. From 1980 to present day, you've shared with us of how the authoritarian regime in Zimbabwe suffocates the media and also suffocates the journalists that are operating in Zimbabwe and from abroad. Would you please recount for us, during the lockdown, in particular during the outbreak of COVID-19, regarding the looting of funds that were meant to offer relief to citizens, in particular to the most vulnerable, would you say that the government has honoured what it was meant to do with those relief funds? Um, uh, partly, government has had to tacitly acknowledge uh, the misappropriation of funds. For instance, in this case in which uh, one of the president's associates or the family of the president's associates uh, got a contract for $60 million. Uh, because of what journalists expose, the president was forced to fire his minister of health. Uh, he was forced to arrest one of his cronies. But uh, some people say, well, it was just uh, in reaction to the reports. Nothing much will happen. But all the same, he was arrested. He's out on remand. Um, there were a number of senior health officials that were fired, directors. So the media had caused action. The government has acknowledged the wrongdoing by doing some of those things. But here is the problem. Uh, as we sit here, while they've uh, done all these things, we actually understand right now uh, the guy that has been arrested over this contract is actually demanding the money and they're trying to assist him to get paid because uh, during the course of uh, the implementation of that contract, he was paid $2 million, uh, United States dollars, uh, the money was paid outside in Hungary. Then Interpol got involved. They froze those funds, and uh, eventually he didn't actually receive the money. So now he's come back to government to demand the money. Today, as we sit here, just an hour or two ago, one of the uh, independent MPs here is actually the only independent MP who is close to the president. He called a press conference today to denounce people who are around the president who are corrupt. And he, he named uh, this gentleman called Delish Nguaya as one of the corrupt people. And then he named one of the ministers of local government, uh, some gentleman called July Moy, saying he's corrupt. So basically say he, the president is surrounded by uh, corrupt people. But uh, the context being that this MP, uh, the independent MP, is close to the president. So he will accuse all these people who are around the president who are corrupt, but he will not mention the president directly. But all the same, it sheds light on what is happening there. And this is in relation to COVID fund. Another example, just uh, last week, a deputy minister of health uh, um, was accused 
or fraudulently, corruptly, in fact, uh, getting a contract for $5.6 million. And nothing has happened. The Anti-Corruption Commission here, they have investigated, they have established the facts that this deputy minister uh, was doing a bidding for a particular company in which he had a vested interest. He would call meetings during the night in order to prevail upon uh, the adjudication process and uh, the officials involved to give a tender to a company in which he had a personal vested interest. But he's still going to office. Nothing has been done. So there are all these things. Journalists are exposing them. But what do you see? You see more hostility, uh, more anger and aggression directed at the people exposing corruption rather than the corrupt ones. It is indeed sad and quite devastating to hear that the aggression, the hostility, the oppression of Zimbabwean people dates back to the colonial rulers right up to present day. Certainly devastating to hear. And in wrapping up that session, uh, Senator Coltart, may I please find out from you, in your view as a legal expert, what could possibly be the way forward that legal experts, together with advocates of the rule of law, together with the respecters of democracy, how may they all collate to try and advise Zimbabwe moving forward in a manner that is respectful towards its citizens, respectful towards the law, and in particular, respectful towards all the legal, the human rights, the Bill of Rights, and the constitutional guidelines of Zimbabwe. Gamso, uh, to answer your question, I've got to take um, people back to the dark days of the end of apartheid in South Africa. Uh, I can remember, that, you know, 1989, thinking about, uh, feeling very depressed about the future of South Africa. Um, it appeared to be heading towards a complete bloodbath. There seemed to be no solution. Nelson Mandela was still in detention. Uh, and, and what uh, occurred in the five years that followed that was, of course, the release of Nelson Mandela and the uh, agreement on a new constitution for South Africa. And that stabilized South Africa, it ushered in democracy and a new era for South Africa. And of course, South Africa has had its own problems, but it, it was a, a major turning point in South Africa's history. Now, Zimbabwe is at a similar um, dark chapter of, of its history, but in many respects, it's not as bad as that, that time for, for one simple a reason, and, and it's this, that we have a democratic constitution. There is a national consensus in our country about how this country should be governed. We went through an elaborate process between 2009 and 2013, uh, where we reached out to all the citizens of Zimbabwe, and we agreed on a new constitution for Zimbabwe. It went to a referendum. There was a massive turnout of Zimbabweans. And by a landslide majority, something like 95% of those who voted, voted in favor of this new democratic constitution. And whilst it's not a perfect document, 
it it is a very good constitution. It's got its flaws, but uh, overwhelmingly, it is a good constitution, and it lays out a very solid foundation for how Zimbabwe should be governed in future. The problem is that since that was agreed to in the referendum of March 2013, it has never been implemented by ZANU-PF. The solution to the crisis that Zimbabwe is facing now is found in that constitution. We have to return to it. Uh, we have to respect it, uh, and we have to respect it in its fullness. So, for example, in the run-up to the next election, uh, we need to ensure that we have a genuinely independent electoral commission, as is mandated by the Constitution, uh, to touch on Dumasani's turf again. Uh, all states allow a diversity of views to be expressed. That is set out very clearly in, in the Constitution. The Office of the Prosecutor General should be independent. The judiciary should be independent. We should not have so-called lawfare here, where laws are used uh, selectively against opponents and not used at all against the supporters of the government. If we do that, if we return Zimbabwe to constitutionalism, we can then get to a general election which... Uh, results in the genuine will of the people being respected. But of course, as Zimbabweans, we can't do that on our own. And this is where the international community, particularly South Africa uh, and our neighbors, is so important. They need to insist that that constitution is respected by Emerson Minagagwa, by ZANU-PF. They mustn't allow these sham elections to take place. They should not be a uh, staying quiet about the uh, wholesale detention and torture of journalists and other activists, they must be speaking out and, and hold ZANU-PF's toes to this fire. Uh, and then collectively, if they do that, we can resolve the crisis in this, in this country and return it to a democratic state. And that in turn will stabilize the economy, will get uh, those in the diaspora uh, to return to the country, and the great potential of this country can be realized. The task is up to Africa as a whole continent to unite and support Zimbabwe towards democracy. Thank you very much, Senator David Coltart. Thank you very much, Mr. Dumisani Muleya. It has been insightful engaging you today. Today's conversation with Senator David Coltart and Dumasani Mulea navigated peace and stability in Zimbabwe. We explored their reflections about the protection of human rights, and we also heard about some misplaced optimism in Zimbabwe. My reflection is that from the colonial oppression to present-day independent Zimbabwe, we seem to be hearing of hostile and aggressive government force towards the Zimbabwean citizens, towards a multi-party democracy, and definitely towards the independent media. All of this taking place in what was fondly referred to as the jewel of Africa. This was the second episode of Let's Talk Human Rights, the FNF Africa podcast exploring human rights issues. If you enjoyed the podcast, join us for our next episode. The Friedrich Naumann Foundation Sub-Saharan Africa is an independent German organization 
that is committed to promote liberal ideals and politics in Africa, such as human rights, the rule of law, democracy, innovation, digitalization, and free trade. By conducting campaigns, media events, seminars, workshops, study tours, cultural happenings, and training courses, the Foundation promotes human rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of the press, children's rights, as well as LGBTQI plus rights, and engages against violence, against women, and capital punishment. If you are interested in our activities, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Simply search Freedom Foundation Africa.